for several thousand years, maybe more, men and women would navigate on land or on sea using what's called celestial navigation. They would use the stars or the planets or some other fixed body in the sky to calculate their location and therefore navigate to their destination. The basic concept of celestial navigation is quite simple, although I am not at all an expert on celestial navigation, but the concept is relatively simple. You find your location in light of a fixed body in the sky, ideally the pole star. And once you've located the pole star, you can then locate your own position and you can then navigate to your destination. Without the pole star or some other fixed body in the sky, there's no way of knowing where you are and little hope of navigating home. You get the pole star right and almost everything else will align. You get the pole star wrong and you will misunderstand where you are and you will more than likely not make it home. This morning we are beginning a a new mini-series called Uncreated, Created. We're going to spend the next six weeks working through Genesis 1 through 3. Now I know some of you, given the first Sunday of the year, we started in Genesis 1, 1 through 3, and you are thinking to yourselves, oh, are we starting, like we're just going to work our way from Genesis to Revelation, just a few verses at a time, and take the next 60 years. That would be wonderful and exciting as well. But alas, we're going to spend the next six weeks on Genesis 1 through 3, and then Lord willing, we're going to do a longer study through the book of Colossians. But what we want to do here in Genesis 1 through 3 is look first at that which is uncreated, God, and then we want to see how everything else, the created, finds its identity and its purpose in the uncreated. Here's why we're doing a series like this at a time like now. There are lots of things in our world in which we can find our identity. There are lots of things in our world that promise meaning, offer to us purpose. There are lots of messages that hold out for us hope and the good life. For example, things that we can find meaning in or purpose in or identity in. It could be a certain body image, the way we look. It could be our income or status or the kind of home we live in or the car we drive or the clothes we wear. It could be that we find our hope or our mission or identity and just getting the right candidate into the White House or our issue being passed on a ballot, or a meaningful romantic relationship in our lives. Or we can find our hope or our identity or our mission in getting our kids to succeed, however we want to define that, or our kids to love us, or for our kids to meet a certain expectation or goal that we might have for them. We can find our identity in, in good health or the absence of sickness. We can find meaning and value and our purpose in a strong 401k or an IRA or a healthy stock market or a strong national defense 
or church members and church leaders who generally do what we like and what we want, or lots of followers, lots of likes on social media, or people around us who respect us and admire us. And we could go on. Now, are any of these things in and of themselves wrong? Well, no. In fact, many of these things can be good gifts of God. But the problem is our hearts, which are prone to wander, often look to these created things to find our identity, to find our meaning, to find our purpose. And we can begin to use any number of things as essentially our, our north, north Star, our Pole Star. Just got to get into the right college. I just got to get the right degree. I've got to meet the right person. We just have to have the right kids. Just have to make enough money. Just to have enough, enough money in our account. Need to have the right house. So the, we can begin to find all our identity in all kinds of other things. What this person says about us. How we are perceived by others. A certain image that we want to project to the world. And so our goal in this series, especially as we begin a new year, is to take a step back and to find, once again, our pole star, so to speak, the uncreated God, that he might realign our identity, that we might find who we are, our identity, and where we are, our place in God's story, and where we're headed, our mission in life, based on him that we might be profoundly affected by God, that we would understand our creatureliness in light of him. That's my prayer. That's my prayer even for 2024, that we as a church would be profoundly affected by God, that our awe of God would grow, our worship of God, that our humility before God would increase, that we would understand our identity, we would understand where we are in God's redemptive plan, and we would understand our world around us and our mission and purpose in this world, the reason we exist in light of who God is and what he's done. And so we begin here in Genesis, because if Genesis is true, that God exists and God has created everything and we owe our very lives to him, then everything else in our world, if we believe that that is true, then everything else in our world and our lives will be headed at least in the right direction. That doesn't mean we'll have everything figured out. It doesn't mean that our values and worldview and priorities will always be right. We may not even be a Christian yet. But if we believe that there is a God who is the creator of all things, who does exist to whom we rightly owe our utmost of allegiance, we will be headed in the right direction. We get the character and the identity and the work of God wrong and almost everything else will be viewed wrongly. We'll begin to think that God owes us something when tragedy or crisis strike, we will get angry with God. How dare you? When good things happen in our lives, we'll fail to be grateful because we think that this is something we're owed. We'll fail to rightly worship. Or we'll think that we can sit in judgment on the character of God or the actions of God or even the word of God. So, six weeks together looking at 
that which is uncreated God, and then looking at all kinds of other things from Genesis chapters one through three and seeing how everything else finds its existence and its identity and its purpose in that which is uncreated. So as we begin, I know this, it's been a while since we began a, a study through a different book than Luke, so let me just give you some intel to kind of catch us all up and get us on the same page. The word Genesis means origins or beginnings, and Genesis was written by Moses, and Moses writes as God leads him to record for the people of God their history, essentially to answer the same question we've been asking this morning, which is, who are we, and where are we at in God's story, and what is our purpose? And gratefully, God gives to his people the answers to those questions, and he does so here in the book of Genesis. In fact, in redemptive history, as Moses writes and then records the book of Genesis and then takes this book of Genesis to the people of God, these people of God have just been led out of slavery. The people who heard this for the first time have just been dramatically freed from captivity to the Egyptians. And God has led them across the Red Sea to safety while at the very same time destroying their enemies. And he now, in this book, is communicating to these people who they are, first of all, who he is, I should say, and then who they are, and then why they exist. The question is, Will their hearts worship and trust or will their hearts return to Egypt? Will they worship and serve the uncreated creator or will they long for and identify with and worship the created, the creature? And so God, in his kindness, gives to them as he gives to us the book of Genesis, that we might know God and that we might see who he is and what he has for us. Because essentially we are in the same place this morning, church. We have been redeemed. We have been freed from slavery to sin and the devil. We've been made alive together with Christ Jesus. And so the question for us is, will our hearts worship and trust? Or will our hearts return to Egypt? Will we navigate life, our identity, our purpose, our mission, that which is true by the truth and the purpose of our true north, the creator God, or will we settle for lesser things, that which is created? So let's take a look at Genesis chapter one. Let's begin in verse one. Word of the Lord says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. In the beginning. We're not told anything about before the beginning. Now here God is content to simply tell us 
in the beginning. Which in fact, in fact marks the beginning of space and time. This marks the beginning of all that is and all that we can see and all that we can know and all that we can comprehend. But before that, there was God. In fact, just listen to one of Moses' prayers recorded for us in what we know as Psalm 90. Moses prays and says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Before the mountains were brought forth, before that which seems to us immovable and permanent, even before that, before you formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Think about that for a minute. Actually, we we can't think about that very well, can we? In kindness, God has given us imaginations. Our imaginations are designed and given by God that we might be able to comprehend, if even only a little, the things of God that are outside our full understanding. That's why God gave you an imagination. And yet even here, our imaginations fail us, don't they? We simply don't have a context or an imagination of nothingness. You might be thinking, okay, well, maybe just utter darkness. The problem is God created the darkness. So what was before the darkness? Or you might think of an absence of planets and stars and galaxies and things like the empty void of space in a Star Wars movie. Remember, God created space. He created the galaxies and the planets. He even created the space into which the galaxies exist. So like even an absence of galaxies still leaves you with a void. And the void was created by God in creation. And so what was before the void? You can see how we struggle to even begin to comprehend what was before God created. There was nothing except there was God. And this brings us to our first of three main points this morning. Some of you are wondering when we were going to get to our points, or if we we're going to have points this morning, or this is going to be a pointless sermon, right? Let me be wondering that as well. <clears throat> Point number one of three. First of all, God is eternal. God is eternal. As impossible as it is to comprehend, God is eternal. And what's interesting is God doesn't give us an apologetic for his eternality. He doesn't even explain to us what all that means and how that works and all the intricacies behind the fact that he is eternal. He just tells us, you need to know that I am eternal. We're called to be content with that. God never had a beginning. He will never have an end. In fact, even to use words like beginning and end relates to time and God exists outside of time. Not even just that God can move within time, right? Like back to the future or something. But God exists outside of time. God is the only being, the only thing that exists that is uncreated. Everything else is created. Even the nothingness, even black holes in space, even negative energy, even the air we breathe is something that is 
created, which means matter is not eternal. Time is not eternal. Space is not eternal. All of these things were created by God. They had a point of beginning. Brothers and sisters, the first step in finding our identity in God, finding our place in God's story, finding our purpose in God is to acknowledge his existence. The author of Hebrews tells us, and without faith it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now, this brings us to an important theological vocab word. So, we're going to add to our vocab collection here at CCF Church here in 2024, the very first Sunday of 2024, with a new word. Are you ready for the new word? The new word is aseity, which sounds like say it with me, which is what I'm going to have you do right now. Aseity. Aseity. Aseity means that God is totally and completely self-sufficient. God lacks nothing. He has everything he needs to be God. And we see this here. From eternity past, God is. Full stop. He didn't create because he was lonely. He didn't create because he needed to be worshipped. He didn't create because he wanted to be entertained or he wanted to be encouraged. Creation does not give God something he needs but otherwise couldn't get. He is, in and of himself, a saity. As one friend wrote, only if God is truly independent of creation does salvation become a truly benevolent act. If God needed creation to meet a need of his, then initiating salvation would be an act of self-preservation on God's part. If God needed our worship, or he needed our praise, or he needed us to follow him, then him initiating salvation would be an act of his own self-preservation. Like, I need you to worship me, and so I'm going to save you so that you'll worship me so that I can remain God. But as it is, God saves us who can offer nothing to him that he lacks. We give him, don't we, as his people, glory and honor, but not in such a way that we fill up a lack in his nature. We merely ascribe to him that which he already has. According according to Hebrews 1.3, God is not dependent on the universe, but we are completely dependent on him. But God's eternality is not the only thing we see about God in these verses. We also see, second, that God is triune. Triune. It means that God is three in one. One God in three persons. And again, we could probably spend months in a sermon series on the Trinity. We're not going to do that this morning, obviously. But we see the Trinity alluded to in places like Genesis 1.26, for example, where God says, let us make man in our image. But we see it perhaps even more clearly here in these first three verses of Genesis chapter 1. In fact, Christians for generations have rightly seen that in Genesis 1.1, 
We see the mention of God, in the beginning God. So if you're looking at the text, you see that, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God. Genesis 1-2 mentions the Spirit. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then in Genesis 1-3, we have a mention of God's word, God's speech, and God said. Now, if we slow down and look more closely, we can see that in verse 1, in fact, the Hebrew word for God in verse 1, in the beginning, God, is Elohim, and it's plural. And yet the verb create, in our Bibles, the very next word is singular, which captures the fact that God is made up of more than just Father, and yet God is also one being, singular in will, in mission, in purpose. One being, three persons, or as we sang this morning, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. We see that from verse 1. And then verse 2, we see the Holy Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. D.A. Carson writes, God's Spirit appears at the first act of creation here and is found again at the beginning of the great creative and redemptive acts of God throughout history. What he's saying is we see the Holy Spirit here, and then we see the Holy Spirit make appearances quite frequently throughout redemptive history. Whenever we see, often when we see great acts of God's redemptive work, for example, and he just gives us a few examples. At the turning of the destructive floodwaters, see the wind of God, the spirit, the breath of God in Genesis 8.1, or at the birth of Israel crossing the Red Sea, God's mighty breath, his when his spirit blew back the waters of the Red Sea in Exodus 14, or at the coming of the day of the Lord, or at the conception of Jesus, or at the act of even us coming to the Father as, John, or as Jesus tells Nicodemus in John 3, or at the advent of the church at Pentecost. Although the term the Holy Spirit occurs, Carson writes, only a few times in the Old Testament, his creative his Holy Spirit, creative and redemptive activity associate the Spirit of God with the New Testament Holy Spirit. We see the Holy Spirit here in Genesis 1-2. And thirdly, we see evidence of God the Son in verse 3. Look at verse 3. And God said... Now, when we put that together with passages like John chapter 1, we know that Jesus, God the Son, is the one through whom God created all things. And John helps us even more by telling us he is the Word of God, the Logos. In the beginning, John writes, was the Word. She's referring to Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. How did God create all things? He spoke it through his word, and it existed. And without him was not anything made that was made. So all creation, each part of it begins with the word of God. I love the way the Apostle Paul would remind us of this in Colossians 1.15, which we'll get to more thoroughly later this spring. But writing of Jesus, John declares, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. 
And just in case we weren't clear on the all things, I think that's Paul's reason for giving us a little more detail here. In heaven and on earth, visible and is visible, thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And that's not even to go to Hebrews, which we won't have time for this morning, so I'll just assign it as extra credit. Hebrews chapter 1, where the writer of Hebrews speaks of God the Son. The writer of Hebrews speaks of Jesus as the one who laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. Speaking of Jesus. We see that God is eternal. We see that God is triune. And our third main point this morning is, is that God is the creator. God is the creator. I won't say much here because Pastor Nick Runlet will be preaching on this theme next week. But we see clearly, clearly the creating work of God here, even in the very first verse, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God barah, which is the Hebrew word there. In fact, it's, it's a word that's only attributed to God. We don't barah. God barahs. He creates. He creates and he creates, scripture is clear, from nothing, or the Latin word is ex nihilo, Ex nihilo, you can impress your friends with that this afternoon. Only God does that. Only God creates from nothing. Some of you are very creative. Tara loves to paint. She's a creative painter and a gifted painter. She paints, she creates things with things that already exist. Some of you build things. You build things from things that already exist. Nick Rogers is incredibly gifted at design and designing things and he designs our templates and our logos and all kinds of stuff. He's creating from things that already exist but not God. God says, let there be. Bam, there is. R.C. Sproul wrote, God's creative activity is not merely the ordering of pre-existent matter like an artisan fashioning a product. God's work is different. He creates from absolutely nothing. Praise his name. The author of Hebrews would drive home this point in Hebrews 11.3 when he writes, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Or Psalm 33.6, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. Friends, this is absolute power. Like we can speak to Siri or to Alexa, and they can follow some of our, play, our commands some of the time. Right? <laughs> we can even speak to those that we might have influence or authority over in the workplace or our children in the home, and they, they may obey, they may do what we want, but they don't do it from nothing. They don't create from nothing. They don't obey from nothing. Our words, in other words, our words do not create life. Our words do not create reality. Sink in for a moment. Sometimes there are messages in our world out there that are different than that. Our words have zero power to create life or reality. 
Only God's words have that power. And we are not God. All things created by God. All things created effortlessly by God. He didn't even sweat, even breathe heavy. So what does all this mean for us? How should we think and respond to all of this this morning? Let me just offer at least four applications or four ways. No doubt there have been lots of application before this as well. You've drawn. First of all, I think we ought to recognize and delight in the authority of God. I cannot overemphasize enough the fact that how we view God will make a monumental difference in every detail of our lives. Lest we think that everything we've been talking about this morning is just some sort of kind of ethereal, theological, conceptual conversation. This is applicable nuts and bolts to everything in our lives. Because what we believe about God and his authority, his creative power and his right as the creator to rule and to reign and our necessity of worshiping him, like that impacts everything. If we think that that God made us because he needs us, that will make a difference in how we relate to God, especially when things don't go the way we want. Or if we think that God's just a little stronger or a little bit bigger or a little more powerful than we are, that will impact how we view both the, the mountaintop highs and the valley lows of this life. It'll view how we approach the great doctrines and truths of the word of God like God's work in saving God's work in redeeming, God's work in keeping his own. It'll affect things like by grace alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone. We don't like authority a whole lot in our culture, but God has rightful authority. And in our worship of him, we are not giving him something and then celebrating the fact that he has it, like we do with infants, right? Like we give them a little stuffed animal, and they're like, oh, you have a stuffed animal. That's so great. Look at them hold their stuffed animal. It's not what we're doing in worship. We're not like giving God praise and then celebrating that God is praiseworthy. What we're doing in worship is falling on our faces before the God as we catch a glimpse of his glory, praising him for who he truly is. Secondly, second application point is humility, which is tied in with authority. It's the proper response to the authority of God. The creation account here is clearly God-centered, not man-centered. God is the lead. We are the supporting cast. God is the uncreated creator. In fact, the only way that we know anything about God at all is because God chooses to come and reveal himself to us. Just let that land for a moment. Like we don't know any of this. If God, in his grace and kindness, condescends to communicate 
that to us, just a bit of his wisdom, truth, and reality to us in baby talk, right? In the way that we, in our finite, weak, frail minds can understand. And near the end of the book of Job, after all of Job's questionings, God comes to Job and God reveals himself to Job. Listen to part of God's message to Job. God says to Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Now tell me, if, if you have understanding, hey, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Who stretched a line upon it? On what were its bases sung? Who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? God is communicating to Job as he communicates to us that he is categorically unlike us and therefore deserves all glory and honor and praise. God creates us then for his glory and for his purposes. And God creates us because he can period. And you might be wondering and thinking, well, I thought we had worth and value and dignity. I thought we were made in the image of God, and I thought we were intricately woven together in our mother's womb, and fearfully and wonderfully made and loved. Yes, all that is true. And we're going to get more to that in subsequent weeks. We want to start this series and this year right here at the very beginning with a bedrock foundation That God is God and we are not. Our friend, fellow church member, Micah Johnson wrote, I thought this was helpful. He said, especially in reformed circles, like our own, we tend to root the necessity of humility in our doctrine of sin. In other words, we root what we think about humility in sin. Like, well, we're sinners, we're wretched, we're worms, we should be humble, He says, while the doctrine of sin compounds our need for humility, humility should first and foremost be rooted in the doctrine of creation. Even if Adam and Eve had never sinned, they would still need to be humble because humility is a necessary consequence of being a created thing. If you were not brought into creation by another, by God, then there's no need for humility. But if your own existence is due to the will and power of another, then humility ought to be the natural response. God never began to be, but we did. God has no limits, but we do. God is omnipotent. We are not. These are true whether sin is in the world or not. Humility, he he finishes, is not primarily the way a criminal relates to a judge, although it's not irrelevant. Humility is primarily the way a creature relates to its creator. Third application is the gospel. You might remember that later scripture uses creation language to speak of what God does in salvation. Just like God created something from nothing, in salvation God creates life from death. We see this in all kinds of places. One of my favorites is 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new what? Creation. 
The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Or Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are a new creation. We are just as formless and void of true eternal life, true salvation without the work of our creator to speak life into our dead hearts. We are incapable of saving ourselves if God doesn't choose to save us first. Fourth and finally, final application is worship. Should be pretty obvious, right? There's more, much more we would like to know here about the Genesis account, much more we would love to know about creation, and maybe one day we can ask our Savior. But what we have here is sufficient. God chose, out of his perfect will, to create everything out of nothing. And this should challenge us when we're tempted to find our identity in anyone or anything else. It should expose our idols for what they are and reveal the ways we worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. And in its place, we should worship. This is precisely what we see in places like Psalm 136 when when the psalmist is reminded and thinking and meditating on the great creative work of God, you almost get the sense that the psalmist can't even write fast enough to keep up with everything in creation that leads him to praise the Lord. Let me just read a portion of it. Psalm 136, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods for his steadfast love endures forever. Forever, Give thanks to the Lord of lords for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens, his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day for his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and the stars to rule over the night for his steadfast love endures forever. The psalmist is looking around and reflecting on creation and and being overwhelmed to praise the Lord. To works of his creator God. And friends, that will be our song throughout all eternity. And that's why there's an element in which every week when Pastor Matt gets up and he leads us, there's an element of, of our time of singing together. It is, in fact, a dress rehearsal for all eternity when we lift up our voices and sing as loud as we can Praise you, Lord, for your steadfast love endures forever. You are the God who's created all things. You have accomplished salvation for your people. Your steadfast love is forever. You are holy. Your steadfast love rules forever. In fact, when the Lord gave the Apostle John just a glimpse of eternal glory, just a glimpse of the scene of heaven, here's just a small piece of what John heard, and I close with this as our refrain as well. It comes from Revelation 4.11. This is the scene in heaven. Worthy are you, O Lord, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, 
And by your will, they existed and were created. 